This episode of The Explainer is supported by Daft Advantage Ads. Selling a home is a huge financial decision, so make sure your property is on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, how do a rock this committee's work and how did Tuberty end up in front of one? Well, we're weeks now into the RTE payment scandal and we've witnessed a slew of both executives and board members appearing in front of a rock this committee's. That's all been pretty tense and dramatic enough until this week, RTE's highest paid star, Ryan Tuberty, also appeared, along with his agent, Noel Kelly. The committee format can often be a highly effective way for elected representatives from across the political divide to seek out answers from those who appear in front of them, all while the public watches on. This can often lead to heated exchanges, unexpected revelations, and if we're being honest, not an insignificant amount of political grandstanding. So how do committees work in Ireland and what's been their place in Irish society? Is the committee format a healthy democratic tool or just a stage for political theatre? And just how did we get to the point where Ryan Tuberty found himself appearing in front of one? To look at all of this today, we're joined by Gavin Riley, who's political correspondent with Virgin Media News, and you might also know him from News Talks on the record. He's also formerly of this parish. Thanks so much, Gavin, for joining us today. Not at all, Laura. Thanks for having me. So, Gavin, firstly, the public has become a lot more familiar maybe with Oireachtas committees in the past few weeks, but they are a big part of the Oireachtas and the work that it does. Yeah, very much so. I think that sometimes we, we can uh, get very head up in some of the, the showbiz maybe that we've seen in, in the last couple of weeks. But that, that isn't really the bread and butter of what Oireachtas committees are actually designed to do. A lot of the time when they meet, it's actually to discuss uh, the draft laws that are going through the Dole and the Shannon. And they go through them line by line and they tease out what are the implications of those laws. And they can suggest amendments to them, which may or may not be taken on board by the minister who's responsible. So oftentimes they, they do their work very much away from the limelight. They might also hear from interest groups that are looking for changes to be made to certain laws or to certain systems that exist. They don't often have uh, issues that are suddenly as newsworthy or as topical as, as what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. And they certainly don't very often have guests as high profile as the likes of uh, Ryan Tuberty and his agent Noel Kelly that we've had in the last few days. Now, legislators, they'll often say that the job of governing is a hard sell in that it's inherently dull. But when we look back at Mary Lou Macdonald's time, let's say on the Public Accounts Committee, Gavin, you could say that that was the first time these committees began to look somewhat colourful or exciting to the public. Yeah, that was a time when the Public Accounts Committee, I think, definitely took on a lot of prominence because I think you have to remember that the time that Mary Lou Macdonald would have been an active member of PAC and also indeed, by the way, uh, Shane Ross and Simon Harris, who would have been standout performers on PAC at that time. This was the austerity years. This was the time between 2011 and 2016. So we'd had a change of government, but there was suddenly an awful lot of focus of where money had been wasted in the past and where people may have been guilty of being a bit flahulock with public funds at a time when everyone else was being asked to tighten their belts a little bit. So suddenly then whenever you had high profile examples of people being perceived as being wasteful with public money uh, under the chairmanship of John McGuinness, then definitely that was a, a real time where the PAC really began to take wings. In fact, there was ironically enough around that time, um, a time where John McGuinness, who was the PAC chair, himself had to be uh, brought in to the PAC uh, because there were some question marks over his spending when he was a junior minister about the quality of toilet roll that was installed in his ministerial toilet. That was the level of stuff that they got into. Uh, but it certainly meant that the PAC became very prominent at the time. And I don't think it's ever really relinquished that kind of prominence since. And Gavin, people will also then remember the FAI's John Delaney. He appeared in 2019. What happened there? 
Yeah, this was all about the FAI and its handling of public money at a time when it turns out that the FAI was actually so hard up that John Delaney, who was then its chief executive, had to actually give the FAI, his own employer, a bridging loan that he basically had to lend back his employer the tune of €100,000 to make sure that they were able to meet all of the checks that had been written out of their account and then get the money back at a later time. And given that the FAI receives an awful lot of public funds for the the furtherance and support of, of grassroots soccer in Ireland, then he was called in to answer questions as to the whole financial arrangements of all of this. Of course, between the invite and him showing up, uh, there was a bit of musical chairs within the FAI. He was invited as chief executive, but when he showed up, he was no longer the chief executive. He had just taken over the role of executive vice president. And as we can hear in a clip now, that meant that he didn't feel like he could answer any questions about his performance as chief executive, a job that he had relinquished only 10 or 11 days previous. On legal advice, I'm precluded from making any further comments at this hearing in relation to the finances of the association or my former role as CEO or the 100,000 payment, either directly or indirectly. Given that some members of this committee have made highly prejudicial public pronouncements about me personally prior to my attendance here today, and in light of the recent Supreme Court hearing or ruling in the Cairns case, I would ask that the committee respects this position. No shortage of theatre with the John Delaney appearance there. But what did you make then of Tuberty's appearance at committee this week? It wasn't just the pack one he was in front of. Yeah, that's right. He was in front of the, the Oireachtas Media Committee as well, although I think uh, we might get onto this a little bit later, that sometimes the lines between two committees have been blurred if you have multiple committees that are ultimately investigating a lot of the same stuff. Um, I thought the, the appearance was a tricky one from his perspective because he's, he's trying to deal with two different audiences. There's the audience of the TDs and senators who are in the room to try and get to the bottom of how exactly RT's financial arrangements were made and what he knew about all of that. But also there's the audience outside. There's the audience who were watching Oireachtas TV or who were watching the coverage on Virgin Media One, those people who who might have been tuned into the RTE player in their workplaces or at home all day as well. Ryan Tuberty had to try and convince those in the room that any financial improprieties on the part of RTE were not of his making. But he also had to try and cater to the audience watching at large, the people at home, to try and convince them that he was still, you know, a, a good soul, that he was a good egg, that he was an honest broker, and that he shouldn't be banished from the airways forevermore and trying to do that. And it's very difficult to be able to cater to those two audiences at the same time, I think. And do you think then that Tuberty and Noel Kelly shed any light onto the scandal that we didn't already know about this week? Uh, well, I think the one takeaway uh, image was that when Ryan Tuberty was being paid through these two controversial invoices drawn from this now famous barter account within RTE, that he genuinely thought he was still being paid by Renault, that when he was contracted originally to do some of these road shows, some sort of like uh, fake or knockoff late, late shows to be conducted in, in Renault showrooms, that he genuinely still thought that that deal was in place, that it was a three-year deal. And although COVID had caused a bit of a backlog, that he still believed there was a deal for him to do these arrangements. And and it has to be said that we're getting into very recent stuff now, but we're recording this on the day that other RTE executives have been in front of the PAC and they've completely uh, undermined that. They've, they're trying to demolish that argument entirely. They're saying that when Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly issued the invoices for years two and three, they would absolutely have been aware. There would have been no doubt at all that Renault were no longer part of the deal. They were off the pitch and that it was ultimately RTE, the national broadcaster, responsible for settling these invoices with public funds. Now, Neither side has been able to conclusively prove that their knowledge is right, but definitely there is now a big outstanding gap in the testimonies between the two sides. And at the time that we're recording this, it's very difficult to see how they can actually bridge that gap and have, have both sides coming together again afterwards. 
Now, it's clearly a tough job for representatives trying to work out what's happened with public money at RTE. So not to diminish the work they're doing here, but Tuberty's appearance did bring a lot of colour this week. What do you think were the standout moments now? We had Noel Kelly calling him the most trusted man in Ireland and we heard one politician reference Tuberty as the toy man. Yeah, which I think really, in a way, gets to the heart of why it was such a difficult sell for Ryan Tuberty, because he's trying to convince the Oireachtas members in the room that from a governance perspective, that there's nothing wrong. But at the same time, then he's also trying to almost remind the viewing public if this is going to be how they judge, whether he's fit to come back on the airwaves again. There was almost a deliberate attempt to try and hark back to some fonder memories that people might have of Ryan Tuberty, that he's these toy show man, that he's a man who just wants the children of Ireland not to bully each other and to read books and to be curious and to be good souls and to be to be charitable and, and to be referred to as the most trusted man in Ireland and, and to refer back to, you know, the, the national altar over which he presided, if you like, during the COVID period when the late date almost became appointment television because there wasn't very much on other than Tony Houlihan's daily uh, press conferences. I think it, what, what really jumped out was the attempt to try and really uh, remind people that Ryan Tuberty was not merely a person implicated by recent scandal, that before the recent controversy of the last three weeks that he did have 13 largely positive years behind him on the Late Late Show and the Late Late Toy Show. And that was what they were trying to remember people about and try to remind them that ultimately he does have this bigger body of work behind him separate to the scandal of the last month. And he very clearly trying to speak from the heart and, and reach the, the viewing audience at home. But as you mentioned, RTE executives were before a committee again today, just before we sat down to record this. The impression I have is that TDs and politicians were hoping to maybe refocus on the future of RTE today. But Adrian Lynch, he had other ideas, some fallout after the Tuberty appearance. Yeah, and this kind of somewhat gets into the nuts and bolts of how committees usually work because often uh, when committees are meeting, they will usually have the witnesses agreed a couple of weeks in advance. They're not, they're not usually rolling with the punches in the way that they have been doing this week. So when you've got your witnesses nailed down a couple of weeks in advance, those witnesses know two weeks in advance that they're going to be going. They can do some work and opening statements. The opening statement might be submitted a couple of days in advance of actually presenting. And therefore, TDs pretty much know what the opening stall is, is going to be when it's set out. And they can work from there. So the statements that were submitted to the PAC on Wednesday night before Thursday's meeting from Kevin Backhurst and from Shuni Raleigh, the RTE chair, were very much forward looking. They were like, right, we've made these changes. We want to try and rehabilitate trust in the national broadcaster. We are very much looking forward. We're mindful of the events of the past, but we are trying to, to look to the future. And then Adrian Lynch, the Deputy Director General, comes in with an opening statement which only arrives 15 minutes before the meeting gets underway and completely changes the tenor of the meeting because instead of it being forward-looking, suddenly it goes back to, well, actually, we don't believe some of the issues that of some of the things that Ryan Tuberty said and that Noel Kelly said, and we can't allow them to go unchallenged. It completely turned the, the tenor and the conduct of the meeting upside down. And it means then that instead of us talking here now, on a Thursday afternoon about what RTE has in its future, we are still again talking about RTE and its highest paid employee being completely at odds about a really, really significant issue. So what happens then next, Gavin? What happens with these committees? Are we expecting reports from them? Will they sit again when it comes to RTE? Well, certainly there appears to be an intention on the part of the two committees to continue meeting because they don't simply believe that they've gotten to the bottom of this yet. And of course, there are a few outstanding witnesses that they would still like to hear from one 
is Jim Jennings, the RTE director of content, a member of the executive board throughout a lot of this time in RTE. Um, he has a pretty significant role in how big broadcasters' contracts are drawn up because he is ultimately the person responsible for deciding how many shows they'll do, how long a season will run, where on a schedule you might fit. So he obviously has a pretty germane role. And then, of course, ultimately, the last director general of RTE, D Forbes, we haven't heard any testimony in Leinster House for her about how exactly Ryan Tuberty's contracts were arrived at, what sort of discussion there was um, about settling Ryan Tuberty's invoices uh, through this controversial barter account. They still haven't heard from her and there will still be ongoing uh, attempts to try and hear from her. And then as regards reports, um, yes, strictly speaking, the PAC has to issue a report about all of this before the end of the year. That was the instruction that was given by the rest of the doll when it was granted permission to look into all of this. So that is still outstanding. They will have to draw some sort of conclusions, uh, but they will obviously want to hear from as many people as possible before they draw those conclusions. Now, on the day that we record this, the doll is due to rise for its summer recess, but both committees appear to have an appetite to continue meeting throughout the recess, if that's what it takes to get to the bottom of it. But of course, whether they'll be able to get the witnesses to continue agreeing to come forward is a separate question. If we look at the committees and how they work then, Gavin, Tuberty himself, he was invited rather than compelled to appear. So what exactly is the difference when it comes to these committee hearings? In practical terms, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. I suppose that the the real difference is uh, perception, that there has only ever been one person who has been formally compelled to appear before an Oireachtas committee, and that is uh, a senior civil servant called Robert Watt. And in that instance, it wasn't so much that Robert Watt didn't want to go before any Oireachtas committees. There was a kind of a technical argument where Robert Watt said, I am the Secretary General of the Department of Health, therefore I should attend before the the Committee on Health. I shouldn't be forced to go in front of any other committees. But the Finance Committee wanted to hear from him about arrangements for Tony Hulahan. There was a bit of a row that all agreed to compel him, and then lo and behold, he agreed to show up anyway. Um, But generally speaking, Uh, what would happen if you are compelled is that you are compelled to attend to answer questions on a specific ring-fenced certain area and then you are therefore forced to answer any questions that fall within that area. Now, it it isn't a carte blanche, one-size-fits-all thing. It's not like you can compel... Gavin Riley to attend before an Oireachtas committee and then you can ask him what brand of toothpaste he uses and what he had for lunch that day uh, and wh- which WWE wrestler he'd like to see challenge Roman Reigns next. They don't have a carte blanche. They can't cast the net that widely. But if Gavin Riley was compelled to attend about the running of the Oireachtas press gallery that I'm also the chair of, if th- those are the circumstances under which I'm compelled to attend, then when I show up, I am legally required to answer those questions. And no one has ever really gotten into the grey area of what would happen if you were still stonewalling at that point. Now, you know, I'm going to ask you, Gavin, what toothpaste you use after all that. Uh, well, those weren't the circumstances under which I was invited to come on this podcast either. <laughs> uh, in truth, I can't remember. It's whichever one we picked up in Tesco the last time we were there. I think it's Colgate, and, uh, but I reserve the right to change my evidence <laughs> if that turns out not to be true. This is it. And, and, and it is your right to do that. And it isn't just as simple then if you did want to compel someone, Gavin Riley, let's say, to appear at committee. It's not as simple as just picking up the phone saying, that's it, you need to show up here on Monday. Well, obviously they can invite you and you can do it voluntarily, but it is the right of any citizen to play hardball to say that they don't believe that it is appropriate for them uh, to be called in and that they can therefore decline an invitation if that's what they choose. Uh, But if the committee does really want to pursue it, if they are desperate to get you in and they do believe that it is important for their work, they can then go through different mechanisms within the Oireachtas. There's a couple of different other Oireachtas bodies that you have to make your case to. But if they believe that you have the right to compel someone or that it's appropriate that a witness be compellable, they then bring a motion to the Dole and the Dole as a whole says, yes, we believe that you should be compelled and therefore the committee will have the power to call you in. And it's in those circumstances then that you are 
effectively legally required to show up and to answer the questions on that specific area. And can you also explain then, Gavin, for our listeners, the legalities of what is said at committee, maybe a bit of a crash course in legal privilege, because it does fall into the same legal privilege as Dáil Éireann. Yeah, basically anybody who is uh, giving evidence to uh, a meeting within uh, Leinster House basically has privilege uh, over what they say. And that means that anything that they say as evidence cannot be then used in a defamation case against somebody else. So if Gavin Riley is giving evidence uh, in front of an Oireachtas committee and Gavin Riley says it's his belief uh, that Laura Byrne doesn't use any toothpaste at all, uh, that might be pretty damaging to your good name and character, but you can't pursue a legal claim against me because I said it uh, with privilege. Now, that is somewhat diluted if you are off the premise. Premises. It's a it's a somewhat complicated thing that only arose during COVID. But it turns out that if you are not actually on the premises of Leinster House, if you're attending remotely or you're giving evidence remotely, you don't have that same level of absolute privilege. You have what's called qualified privilege, which means that it's not fully robust. But as long as you are giving evidence in a committee and you're giving evidence on the specific issue that's asked, anything that you say, uh, you should have the freedom to say it and not be worried about the legal consequences of saying it afterwards because the committee wants to hear from you as fully and as frankly as possible. And therefore, you sort of have a license to say something which which may otherwise get you into legal difficulties because the committee ultimately has a desire to hear from you and you have to give your full unvarnished stance on that issue. And this issue of privilege came into the spotlight then during Angela Karen's appearances. Gavin, can you remind us of what happened there? Yeah, and this is the reason why uh, the privilege and, and the, the compatibility only applies to the specific area that you were called in. Um, Angela Kerens was previously the chief executive of Rehab, which is a charitable group, which you know obviously runs a lot of different therapies and services for people with disabilities. It is also in significant receipt of public mon- funds to do that. But Rehab also has other private streams of revenue. It ran private fundraising. It would have a well-known uh, Santa Bear campaign. It would sell scratch cards to try and raise revenue for its activities. Angela Kearns was called in to talk about the way in which Rehab operated, the sort of pay that it gave to the likes of her as a chief executive and the way in which it rewarded other senior figures. And the pretense of the PAC calling her in was that they wanted to establish what exactly was done with public funds. But what happened, though, was that Angela Kearns felt after the fact that a lot of questions went far beyond the the formal remit of the PAC. They were asking questions around her personal pay, which wasn't necessarily drawn out of public funds, and they believed that that wasn't really an appropriate line of questioning. So although they answered the questions on the day with a relatively straight bat, Angela Kearns then pursued legal action afterwards, claiming that basically she was asked questions which were far beyond uh, the remit or the responsibility or the interests uh, of the Oireachtas. And ultimately what happened is that the Supreme Court agreed that the Supreme Court found that Oireachtas committees can't really go off the reservation, that if they call you in to answer for rehab spending of public money, that's the issue that they can call you in on. They can't go uh, into further areas that are beyond that scope. So if Gavin Riley is called in to talk about the affairs of the Oireachtas Press Gallery, Gavin Riley can't be compelled to answer question, questions around uh, what he drank at the weekend or what toothpaste he uses. That is off the reservation. But it was only the Angela Curran's case that actually established that there are limits beyond which the Oireachtas can't go. Thinking of selling? Choose a daft advantage ads to guarantee unbeatable visibility, attract more buyers and get the best price for your home. Ask your estate agent for a daft advantage ad today. And committee members in the last couple of weeks, I would I would imagine, entirely mindful of that ruling while carrying out their work. And when we look at the RT scandal in Gavin, it can all seem like a little bit of fun and games, perhaps in the last couple of weeks. But what is the normal role then of committees in terms of the scrutiny of everyday legislation? 
Yeah, usually it's it's at committee stage of a bill, so I, I won't give people the full uh, gist of how a bill becomes a law. There is, in fact, still a piece uh, in the archives of the journal.ie that I wrote many years ago, which, which I understand is still referred to by civil servants sometimes as to how a bill becomes a law. Uh, but the everyday role of a committee is that after a bill has gone through its first stage in the Doyle, where TDs debate the general principle of a bill and whether they think it's a good idea for it to go forward, then it gets referred to a committee and the committee starts to go through it line by line. Does this section do what we intend for it to do? We can debate exactly what it provides for. We can thrash out the consequences of it in its particular wording. Uh, and TDs and senators in the Dáil and Shannon can propose amendments to that bill. You know, So if it turns out, for example, like the legislation going through right now about hate speech, if there are uh, concerns raised that you're trying to criminalise hate speech, but you haven't defined what is hate. And that is the point at which then you can say, well, actually, there's some defects with this bill that you might support the general thrust of it. But there are specific issues that you take issue with. And that is the role of the committee. They are there basically to do line by line scrutiny and to figure out whether there might be any landmines about to go off unless you change the wording. And that, that's really the role of a committee. And that's why oftentimes you don't get to see much of them in the news because they do work, which is quite important, but also, to be blunt, quite mundane. And you're right, they run all the time and you and I will both know that a a news editor every morning will look through what's coming up and see what kind of fits with the news of the day. But what in your experience then makes these committees interesting or worthwhile? Well, oftentimes it can be the PAC itself because the PAC doesn't actually have a legislative role. Its job is purely supervisory. It's there to scrutinise. So they will decide that there are uh, the accounts of a publicly funded body that need to be scrutinised a bit. And they will ask the senior executives of that body to come in and take questions. And that in itself can have some real value because oftentimes you can have the people who are responsible for very important state agencies, agencies which are in receipt of an awful lot of public funds, but which don't really have that much of a public face and which you'd never get some scrutiny of otherwise, they can be called in, that you can ask them uh, to stand over the way in which they spend their money and you can have really valuable um, scrutiny and oversight of what they do. And it is worth saying as well that the other committees, although, as you say, their role is primarily to, to deal with legislation as it goes through, they can call in senior executives from public bodies to talk about major issues of concern. So, for example, this week, uh, the Oireachtas Media Committee, aside from everything that it's doing about RTE, um, called in uh, senior figures from uh, many of the public broadcasters in Ireland, including Virgin Media Television, my own employers, and they called in senior executives from the country's main sports bodies because they wanted to talk about the general idea of um, how do we deal with sports broadcasting? How do we try and strike the balance between making sure that people can see a certain amount of it free to air and to make sure that it's still uh, commercially viable for you to sell your product through streaming or through satellite or pay-per-view broadcasters. So that kind of thing, which you could never have a full debate about in the dull chamber, because you're not going to expect senior figures from RTE and the GAA to show up literally in the chamber, sitting beside the Taoiseach in full view of every other TDs. But you can do it in committee. You can say, we are a specialised committee of TDs. This is a specific issue that we want to tease out a little bit more. And we're going to have you in to try and have a worthwhile discussion and exchange ideas about how all that's going to work. That's the sort of thing that committees can do that the Dáil and Shannon themselves are never really capable of doing. And does the committee system in its essence work well? How is it viewed then within the political sphere, do you think? Uh, the one major difference that it has, I suppose, by comparison to uh, major uh, Dole and Shannon business is that they don't really have a political colour to them. So, you know, we, we talked earlier on about the role of the PAC during the austerity years and how the PAC became really prominent under the tenure of uh, John McGuinness and Mary Lou MacDonald and Shane Ross and Simon Harris. They're all going in there with different party affiliations or none. But party affiliation doesn't really matter often when you go into committees, because if you're talking to an outside body about their views of the world or if you're talking to them about their handling of public money, 
doesn't really matter whether you're government or opposition. What you want is for there to be as good governance as possible and the best use of public funds. So the one thing that, that, that really strikes you as being different, when you watch leaders' questions in the Dáil, for example, there's this real dynamic of opposition versus government. That dynamic often just completely disappears in a committee room. It can be there if you're talking about actual legislation, but more often than not, if you're having outside bodies in and you're talking to them about their work, you take off your party jersey and you are, if you like, wearing the green jersey of Ireland and it doesn't matter what party you're from. And often that can be very refreshing because people who find the doll very repetitive and very tiresome and to be very indulgent of punch and duty politics, often the committees will be their refuge because you just don't have that kind of tenor in there. It is one of the few places where you see that sort of camaraderie almost between the political uh, appointees. But how do you end up on a committee then, Gavin, and how do you become chair, let's say? Well, certainly as regards how you end up on a committee, everyone or almost everyone uh, should be on a certain number of committees because there are a couple of dozen committees across Leinster House dealing with different sectoral issues, whether you're you're examining the work of the Department of Finance or the Department of Education. And then there's a few other specific committees, like a committee that's been set up to examine uh, assisted dying, for example, a previous one that's been set up to examine uh, the country's policy on autism. There are very spe- specialised and specific committees. But frankly, there are so many of them that basically everyone who isn't a minister or isn't a front bencher or a party leader um, should effectively end up on a couple of committees. So, you know, um, there's been some high profile examples of people who are on the PAC and the Oireachtas Media Committee that when the RTE figures this week ended up before two committees, sometimes they, they were facing questions from the same person twice in one day because Imelda Munster and Alan Dillon are both members of those two committees. So everyone is on some. As regards how you become chair, um, then you get into the little known and very wonkish system called the DeHaunt method, whereby uh, party chairmanships are allotted among parties based on how many TDs they've got in the doyle. So, for example, the, the Labour Party has seven TDs, so pro rata, they're entitled to a certain number of committee chairmanships and a certain number of committee positions. Likewise, some of the independent groupings, which have six or seven or nine independent TDs, they're entitled to a certain number of chairs because of their size. So they're all allocated in that sort of way. And then basically there is a a very private, very somewhat secretive, somewhat Byzantine, but ultimately actually quite transparent uh, breakdown where the, the parties sit down in a room one day and decide, right, well, I'm Sinn Féin and I get first dibs, so I take the PAC, for example. Then somebody else says, well, I'm Labour and I get next dibs, so I'm going to take chairmanship of some other committee. And, and that's how it works. It's a little bit uh, difficult to explain in the scope of the chat that we're having today, but there is just a very mundane uh, mathematical methods through which these things are assigned to make sure that every uh, committee or every party gets its fair share of chairmanships. And are there certain types of TDs then, Gavin, who lean into the committee life, who maybe excel at it? We've noticed a lot of cross-pollination between some of the committees over the last couple of weeks. Now, there is a bit of showboating at committee, it has to be said. I suppose if you think about life as an opposition or as a government backbench TD, you will often wonder, well, if you think that some of the currency of you having your job and you being able to hang on to your job is visibility, it's sometimes it's very difficult to be visible in the Dáil Chamber because often what will make the TV news, for example, or what somebody will write an article about on the journal.ie or elsewhere is what happens at leaders' questions. And that usually means Leo Varadkar taking questions from Mary Lou MacDonald, from Ivana Bachik, from Holly Cairns, from Richard Boyd Barrett or Paul Murphy, and from a small number of other independent TDs. It can be very difficult as a government backbencher or as another party backbencher to break through that. But committees can actually be your forum to do that. So sometimes you have to be mindful that although you're watching a committee and you think there's an awful lot of grandstanding from an independent TD or somebody like Imelda Munster or somebody like Alan Kelly, 
that is oftentimes their only forum to which they can be heard. And you can understand, therefore, if they might indulge themselves a little bit in making sure that what they say is as sound bitey as possible. Because politics is a competitive business. There's 160 members of Dáil Éireann. They all want a bit of coverage, but there's only so much airtime they can have. Often committees are their way to get that airtime that they're not going to get in the Dáil Chamber itself. And Gavin, what about high profile Oireachtas committee inquiries in the past? And we did mention John Delaney. Some of our listeners may feel that the committee format really came into its own, though, around the banking inquiry, which you did touch on earlier. Yeah, that's right. And that actually was was a very unusual format of inquiry because we never usually have that kind of formalised sense of a, a committee being set up specific to investigate specifically to investigate a named topic and to be given a particular deadline to do that. The banking inquiry uh, was one such format and that was very useful because again it had powers of compelability so even though there was very few people who would have been reluctant anyway they said no we want to get Brian Cowan, we want to get Bertie Hearn and we want to really get under the bonnet and talk about what was happening in government uh, on the night of the bank guarantee and, and what led up to it and what you were aware of about the brewing issues in the financial system. Now the, the one big issue that the banking inquiry had in truth was that it was set up so late. Um, had the banking inquiry been set up in 2012 or 2013, there was a good chance that it would have been able to uncover stuff that was new. I think having watched a lot of its business, the biggest problem that the banking inquiry had was that the events had been so far in the past that there had already been a lot of different reports commissioned by governments. There'd been a lot of interviews, a lot of books written about these things. So there weren't too many stones left to overturn. Uh, but there was certainly still value in having some sort of public catharsis where people like Bertie Ahern and Brian Cowan were called in and asked questions about how they thought things were going. And that's the sort of format that we might see again in the future, because if there is to be a public inquiry about the government's, uh, different governments' handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and whether they took the right decisions or whether in hindsight they were wrong to act in certain ways, that might, might well be the format in which it's done. And if that is the first time that you hear from any of the stakeholders, key NEFID members or officials behind the scenes, that could really be a really, really good format where you have public visibility of what happened and you have this kind of real-time transparent inquiry into what was going on. And committees do have a place when it comes to social justice issues, that kind of thing. The Eighth Amendment Committee formed a big part of that national debate and we've had the Assisted Dying Committee recently. Yeah, and, and it is really some of a, you know, a, a depoliticised format. So we talked a few minutes ago about how when people go into these sorts of things that they tend to take the party jersey off. And, and those sensitive social issues are really where that comes into its own, because I think you'd have to say that if everybody went into a committee on, for example, the repeal or replacement of the Eighth Amendment, if everyone goes into that wearing a party jersey, then nothing really gets done because you just end up having the same logjam as you would do if it were just being debated in the Doyle where everybody acts in accordance with party instructions and you don't really have any uh, consensus being built. The, the likes of a, a committee like that where people aren't going in with too many preconceived notions, they might go in, of course, with personal opinions, but they go in not with a party instruction of how they act. They go in there as independent free thinkers and ultimately come out with a consensus that they all reach together in as much as possible. That has real value because there there is no value in having people going in to discuss an issue like assisted dying, for example, if they all go in and represent what they believe to be their existing party policy, because you're never going to have any consensus. But if you go in there and you decide that everyone's going to go in there, everyone goes in with a, a relatively speaking open mind, you go in, you hear your evidence, you, you figure out what works and what doesn't, what is humane and what isn't, and then you take it from there. That's where really where the value of Rockus committees comes in, because again, you're just not going to get that level of sensitive discussion in the Dáil Chamber with 160 TDs all wearing different party rosettes and all trying to stay loyal to their particular view. And can you bring us back to the Eighth Amendment Committee, Gavin? How did it work? Who appeared before it and how did it help tease out that issue? 
The thing you have to remember about the committee that was set up specifically to look at the Eighth Amendment is that it followed a citizen's assembly. So it wasn't the first leg of the process. The government had already, if you like, farmed out uh, a decision on whether the existing constitutional ban should be gotten rid of to a public people's assembly. And then they had reached some conclusions. But of course, you can't just take conclusions and then sort of decide, right, those are the rules now. You need to be able to translate that stance into law. So, for example, if the the Citizens' Assembly decided that um, abortion should be permitted, for example, this isn't precisely how it went, but just to give an example of how how you'd illustrate its work. If the Citizens' Assembly had decided that uh, abortion should be permitted in cases of incest, well, then you go and, and think of that as a legislator and you say, well, how do you actually put that into legal practice? Because then if you go and look at the law, strictly speaking, incest is rape because nobody in the eyes of the law can actually consent to sexual relations with a member of their family. So you immediately then get into the perception of, well, how do you actually sort of allow for that in law? You have to translate it into a black and white nuts and bolts system that can be written into law and that people can then abide by afterwards. Similarly, if people had the stance of that they they think that uh, abortion should be allowed in cases of rape, well, how do you legislate for that? How do you decide what is the most appropriate thing to do in cases of rape? Because how do you prove that it was rape? Are you expecting somebody to go through the criminal justice process? Are you expecting somebody to have uh, a criminal conviction for a rapist before you'd be allowed to have an abortion? That's obviously totally impractical because in many cases, if you can get a conviction for rape, it, it is years after the offence is committed. So that's where the role of an Oireachtas committee comes in. You think, you well, you, you want to take this intention and then you figure out what is the best way to put it into law. And what ended up happening in the Oireachtas Committee is that they decided, well, the best way to deal with victims of rape is not to re-traumatise them by asking them to go to the guards or to wait for a charge to be brought or wait for a conviction. They decided that the best way you could cater to the victims of rape is to allow anybody to request a termination in the first 12 weeks of their pregnancy and not presuppose their rationale for doing so. That was the sort of thing that an Oireachtas Committee was set up to examine because it's not the purview of a citizen's assembly to go looking at the nuts and bolts of verse and chapter of law and figure out what that means. The, the role of the committee was to basically translate those broad opinions into a law that they thought was workable. And that, that was really what, what the, the justification and the merit of that committee was in truth. And finally, Gavin, I guess it'll be down to the electorate to decide if the committees have done the state some service uh, in the public interest, let's say in relation to RTE. Is the reform of the committee system on the way? In truth, uh, I don't think so. I don't think there has ever really been any massive appetite to try and reform the way they work because by and large, uh, as we spoke when we, we set out for all of this uh, conversation, um, committees generally don't tend to be high profile. That the, the era that we're living through over the last couple of weeks with different RTE or public figures or different sporting bodies being called in for high profile sessions, that's the exception rather than the rule. So what generally what happens is that committees are able to, to do their job, largely speaking, without there being a huge amount of scrutiny and people are broadly happy. Um, if there is one area that might be looked at, it might be the area of having multiple committees investigating the same thing at the same time. So the PAC and the media committee both investigating RTE side by side, to some degree duplicating the work of the other. There might be some work in future, and I know that this is something that many uh, members have voiced concern about. Maybe it would be a good idea to formalise a way in which you can sit in joint session. So the PAC and the media committee would be sitting at the same time and wouldn't be duplicating their work. There's a few legal complexities that I won't bore people with at this stage. And there are some concerns around whether it's fully plausible to be able to do that. But I think if there is one issue that does need to be addressed, it's the fact that right now you could have 
uh, the, the PAC and the media committee both investigating RTE or you could have the health committee and the committee on finance and public expenditure both investigating the pay of top people in the Department of Health or consultants for example there maybe ought to be a way to streamline things to avoid that duplication but broadly speaking committees are, are out of the public eye because they do their job effectively and quietly so there isn't really that much appetite to change the way that they work if it ain't broke don't fix it well, I guess at the very least, the RTE scandal has allowed the public to look under the hood of the democratic workings of the state. So that's no harm. Look, thanks so much, Gavin, for joining us today and filling us in on all of that. Not at all, Laura. I hope it was helpful. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft Advantage Ads, the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Looking to get the best price for your home? Ask your estate agent for a Daft Advantage ad today. Thanks again to Gavin Riley of Virgin Media News for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.